following is a presentation of the Church of the Living God in Traverse City, Michigan. So last week, if you were here, you know that we talked about, in Hebrews 12, this issue of persecution. That when persecution arises, when we face trials as Christians, when something hard happens to us because of our faith... This is an opportunity not for us to despair or get discouraged or get angry. It's an opportunity. It ought to bring out some excitement in us because God is giving us an opportunity to shine in the moment while there's some kind of challenge coming to us as followers of Christ. The writer of Hebrews now takes that idea and moves it to something that's a little bit broader in scope. So persecution was part of this, but now he's just going to talk about ways in which God allows challenges in our life and the way in which we can use these challenges for our good and for God's purposes. So I'm going to pick up in verse 3 of Hebrews chapter 12. We're going to read a couple paragraphs and then we'll talk about that for the rest of the morning. You seem to have forgotten the proverb directed to you as children. My child, do not treat as trivial the instruction or the chastening or the correction that comes from the Lord. Depending on your translation, you're going to hear a slightly different word used there. And don't despair and lose heart when he steps in to correct you. For the Lord disciplines those he loves, and he corrects each one he takes as his own. For this is a means of good to your soul if we make use of it. I'm going to add a little bit of commentary mixed in with these verses. There is so much to say about this that I really can't capture in a sermon. So just understand I'm taking the core of the biblical text, adding just a few comments comments in it, to help us understand the context of what's happening. Endure hardship as God's discipline. Submit to his authority. Humble yourselves under his hand and pray for his blessing. Rejoice that he is treating you as his children, for what child doesn't experience discipline from a parent? But if you're not experiencing the correction that all true children receive, then it may be that you are not his children after all. Remember, when our human parents disciplined us like an Olympic trainer trains his athletes, we respected them. As the rabbis say, love which is not joined with reproof is not genuine. If that was true of our fleshly father, shouldn't we respect and live under the correction of our spiritual father even more? Our parents corrected us for a time as it seemed good to them. But God only corrects us to our good so that we may share in his holiness. When punishment is happening, it never seems pleasant, only painful. Later, though, it yields the fruit of righteousness to be enjoyed in peace after the conflict to everyone who has been trained by it. So don't be the boxer who is out on their feet. Lift up your feeble, dangling hands. Embrace your weakened knees. Make straight paths. And the literal imagery here is... Like if you have a cart and you go over it again and again and you get these huge ruts. We don't really have carts that do that anymore. So if you can kind of envision this, if you've ever seen a Western and these wagons are kind of getting stuck in ruts, that's the kind of path. It's not this shallow path. It's this groove that is in the ground. Make straight paths or make straight wheel tracks with or for your feet so that the lame among you won't be put out of joint but will heal. We're going to end on that last verse at the end of the sermon because there's some things to unpack from that. But let's talk about fathers a little bit. So here's the challenge with biblical language. Because God desires to help us understand him. God uses language that we can understand. So he uses family language. 
But not all of us have had family experiences that were a blessing. Not all of us have experienced good fathers. So when we hear this language about God disciplining us as a father, a lot of what you feel probably tracks with what you experienced with discipline from your own father. If you had a father who was just and gracious and kind and you knew that the discipline was coming from a heart like that, to hear that God disciplines us like a father can be fine. But if you had a father that was not like that, a father that was abusive, or cruel, mean, uh, calloused, then to hear that God is a father who disciplines you, this can really create a, a barrier in understanding this. So just keep this in mind as we talk this morning, that God is the father that we wish our fathers were. Or you could say it this way, for those of you out there who are fathers, God is the father we wish we were to our kids. Uh, anybody in here have a perfect father on earth? All right, good. I was going to have a conversation if anybody raised their hand. Any of you fathers here a perfect father? So that's our dilemma, right? As we hear this language, we tend to associate it with the fathers that we know, including ourselves if we're fathers. So what we're talking about as we look at this passage is God is the father that we wish our fathers were or that we wish we were. This is daunting, by the way, for those of us who are fathers, knowing that our children are going to make a connection with how they view God as a father, with how they view us as a father. Now, if you haven't been a good father, I don't want this to shame you or make you give up. This is an opportunity to look at yourself and go, okay, I am not honoring God and representing the God, representing God the way I should to my kids. Uh, it is time for me to repent to God and to them and move back into their lives in a way in which I seek to be an ambassador for Christ in my relationship as a father. So let this be an encouragement to you to move back into that position. Let me also encourage you to not carry the burden of perfectly representing God as a father because you're just not going to do it. That's why a process of honest introspection, repentance to our children if we wrong them, this is an important uh, aspect of our lives just as, as we're seeking to be as submissive as we can. But we have to step into this world where there is a perfect father to really understand where this passage is going. Because perfect fathers, they want what's best for their children. And by that, and now I'm talking about God in particular, this is holiness, this is righteousness, this is maturity in every kind of aspect. That is what God our Father wants in us. Now that's what I want as a father in my sons as well. I think I have two sons in here this morning, so listen up, boys. This is what I want for them. This is what my dad wanted for me. And while I have other things I want for my sons, I mean, nobody has this plan where they want their sons to go through hardship. Like, I just can't wait until the bottom drops out of their life financially or they're devastated by emotional issues. You don't really long for that as a dad, right? But if you would ask me, what do I want to see my kids grow into and grow up into? I want them to be mature adults. I want them to love God. I want them to understand what holiness and righteousness is. And if everything else falls in place, awesome. That's fine. But if those things don't fall in place, those aren't the key things in my heart as a father. I want my boys to be mature disciples of Christ. 
the rest of their life? Sure. I have an image of what it would be nice for them to experience based on the limited knowledge that I have. But if you ask me, what's the one thing you want for your boys? I want them to be mature followers of Jesus. If they have nothing else in life, that is sufficient for me in my father's heart. All right, so we're stepping into this world where God is the perfect father. He wants perfect things for us. He wants the best ends for us, and he's going to accomplish this through the best means for us. Now, this is going to, at times, include hardship and trials. So my dad disciplined me, and God knows he had good reason to. Uh, I was a liar when I was a kid. I was, for a year or two of my life, just a pathological liar. I just lied. Just knew I would get caught for no apparent reason. The, the one incident that stands out in my mind that will really be all that you need to know about this was sitting at supper one night. I was probably six or seven years old. My dad comes home from work, and he says, what did you do today? And my mom is sitting right there. I make up a whole story. And my mom's like, you didn't do that. I'm like, yes, I did. And then dad got his belt, and it all went downhill from there. <laughs> that was a fairly typical story for a, a while in my life. Um, my dad did not spare the rod. Right? My dad made me do chores. I just want you to know I hated chickens for a long time, which is probably why I take such great pleasure in eating them fried now. I, you know, middle of winter, you got to go out, you got to break the ice, you got to put fresh ice in, and you got to dig out all the chicken crap while roosters attacked me. Um, and I'm not going to, no, I have a story you can ask me about later. I don't really want to say it on a Facebook live stream. But let's just say I confronted one of those roosters one time and it never attacked me again. Uh, my dad put boundaries around my books and music. I couldn't read everything I wanted to. When I went to the library, my mom in this case, but my dad was, my mom and my dad were a team on this. And I would talk about my mom more, but because the language of this passage is a father, I'm going to stick with talking about my dad this morning. If I would go to the library and want a book, they'd check out those books. They wanted to know what was age appropriate for me. I didn't get to read everything I wanted to read. I didn't get to listen to all the music that I wanted to listen to because my dad had strong opinions about the kind of music I should be filling my mind with. In hindsight, I don't think he was correct in all of those boundaries. But still, that was his right as a father to be able to tell me that. My dad set a curfew for me. My dad took half of my paycheck until I turned 18, and I paid them for gas and mileage on my car, on their car, until I bought a car, which meant when I worked, I probably brought home about a dollar an hour by the time it was all done. Uh, so Braden and Vince, just be ready. My dad let me know when I was full of myself. I remember at times him very directly confronting me. I was an arrogant kid. I had some real pride embedded in me, and my dad was not afraid to call me out on that. Now, I don't remember hearing the words, I love you, from my dad until I was much older. But I never doubted that my dad loved me. Just because of my dad's presence in my life, there was a strength to him. There was a kindness to him. As much as he disciplined me, he was a big teddy bear in a lot of ways. But in hindsight, I knew he loved me because of his discipline. Now, it was not pleasant in the moment. But one thing I knew is that my dad was invested in me enough to discipline me. He could have written me off 
and said, you know what? If you want to grow up to be an idiot, you go right ahead. And if you're thinking of talking with me later about whether or not his plan worked, um, let's just, you could talk to me later. But he, he could have kind of abandoned that aspect, but he didn't. He, I was given to him to steward by God. So this idea of stewardship, we often talk about it in terms of the planet or creation. Genesis 1, steward the earth. But I'm a firm believer that when God puts things in our circle of influence, he's given it to us to steward, to take care of, and our job is to give it back to him eventually in better condition than we got it. So I'm a steward of my wife. I really believe someday I will stand before God and give an answer for how I stewarded her. Is she better for having been with me? My kids, have I stewarded them? Well, not perfectly, impossible standard. But have I stewarded them? My dad wasn't afraid to make me grow up because it was his job to make a boy a man. I didn't always understand it, and my dad didn't do it perfectly. And as I think in hindsight, I could think of things that he could have done better than he did. And so there was reasons I was confused at times about what his discipline looked like. But like I said, he was my steward, and he, and he worked on it. And I experienced in him a measure, an imperfect measure, of what God does for me perfectly as his child when he administers discipline. I've just finished a book this last week called The Coddling of the American Mind. This was not a book written by Christians. So a couple guys talking about what happens when kids grow up in an environment where they're just never challenged, nothing hurts, they get what they want, they're never forced to grow up. They use a physical analogy for this, and it's something they call threats in small doses, that as children, we need threats in small doses so that as we get older, things that potentially could have a devastating impact on us don't. And they give a couple examples. They talk about that's how vaccines work. That's why you want to let kids play in the dirt when they're young because of the germs that they're exposed to. That's why pets aren't a bad idea. Uh, there's actually a study done about peanut allergies that when young children are carefully exposed to peanuts when they're just infants that the rate of peanut allergies drops remarkably because of that early threat in small doses. Now, if you're considering trying that, you need to talk to your doctor. There's a lot more detail about that, right? So don't take that as Dr. Anthony telling you to go out and do a particular thing. Their point was a broader one. It was simply that we need small challenges so that as we get older, things that might overwhelm us won't because we've been prepared for it. Now, the authors of this book, they move it to discussions of basically why we have so many snowflakes in America, all over the map, just people who can't seem to handle what really ought not be a big deal. It's because they were always sheltered from things that were small deals. There's something called the hygiene hypothesis, which says the wealthier a nation gets, the more sickly its people get which is a crazy thing because the wealthier we get, the more we have to clean with. And so we clean everything constantly. And as a result, our immune systems don't develop like immune systems develop other places. Now, I like living in a country where I can have things to clean a lot because there's a downside to not having those things. Their point was not that we should go back to third world standard living. Their point was simply that if we don't 
let our bodies get used to responding to small threats. We won't know what to do with the big ones. So as they apply it broader, they gave a quote from Chief Justice Roberts. He gave a speech at his son's middle school graduation. And they gave a quote that has really stuck with me. He said this, from time to time in the years to come, I hope you will be treated unfairly. He was saying this to 7th and 8th graders, or 8th graders in particular, so that you will come to know the value of justice. I hope you will suffer betrayal because that will teach you the importance of loyalty. Sorry to say, but I hope you will be lonely from time to time so that you don't take friends for granted. I wish you bad luck, again, from time to time, so that you will be conscious of the role of chance in life. I wouldn't agree with that part, but stick with me. And understand that your success is not completely deserved and that the failure of others is not completely deserved either. And when you lose, as you will from time to time, I hope every now and then that your opponent will gloat over your failure. It's a way for you to understand the importance of sportsmanship. I hope you'll be ignored so you know the importance of listening to others. I hope you will have just enough pain to learn compassion. Whether I wish these things are not, they're going to happen. And whether you benefit from them or not will depend upon your ability to see the message in your misfortunes. That's not Bible, but that's pretty good. So last week we talked about how micro-persecutions that we could experience could strengthen us for when the time comes that we experience macro-persecutions. And I kind of think that's what this passage from Hebrews is talking about. That God sends trials, discipline, corrections, chastening. Once again, depending on your translation, you're going to hear different kind of words to describe this. God will send you things in doses we can handle Though we might not feel it at the time, it might feel overwhelming, God at minimum allows this, and I will talk about this a little bit more, for our sake, for our maturity, and for our growth. John Sanderson says, if we only knew how bad we are, we would welcome chastening, because this is God's way of getting rid of sin and habits, but chastening is resented because we cannot believe that we have done nothing worthy of it, but we have. When we were children, we deserved chastening from our parents. Your kids deserve chastening from you if you're a parent. This is just the way it works. And part of the process of good parenting is giving appropriate chastening as it's needed. And as parents here on earth, we don't always have the best motives. We don't always do it by the best means. We're going to struggle. The beauty of a heavenly father is that the way in which this father addresses issues in our life is going to be done perfectly. And it'll be challenges in doses that we can handle for what God intends to accomplish through it. It'll be the means that he achieves this kind of maturity. Uh, two quotes before we start looking at four different aspects of, of how this works. The first is from a preacher named H.W. Beecher. If any of you read a book called Uncle Tom's Cabin, this was the author of Uncle Tom's Cabin's father. He said, whom he loves, God loves so much. He will not let them abide in the lower parts of their nature. He will rout them out. He will drive them up. Whom he loves, he means to make more of. He means to ennoble them. Charles Spurgeon said, lawns which would be, which we would keep in the best condition are very frequently mown. The grass has scarcely any rest from the scythe or from the mower. 
Out in the meadows, there is no such repeated cutting. They're mown but once or twice in the year. Even thus, the nearer we are to God and the more regard he has for us, the more frequent will be our adversities. To be very dear to God involves no small degree of chastisement. So this is something I think we have to settle into. God's plan is to mow the lawns of his children. The Bible uses language, purify us like gold through fire. So we get all the dross out and the gold is pure. Jesus used the language of pruning. God desires his children to bear fruit. And in that grape analogy, you've got to prune for the harvest to really be good. All of these are giving the same message that when God loves his children, which he does, one way in which this is expressed is through his discipline of his children or the adversity he allows for his children. So like I said, let's note four things about this. Number one, discipline's going to happen. Now I'm just repeating myself, but I want to make this point clearly. Corey Ten Boom from The Hiding Place, she once said, it hurts when God has to pry things out of your hands. Right? Those things we cling to, if they are going to undermine us and hurt us, a loving God gets them out. And if we don't figure out how to let go, God's going to do some prying, even if it's uncomfortable. It's a sign that God's invested in our glorification. I think I've said this before, but I used to tell the boys that I coached in basketball, if I discipline bad habits out of you, it's because I'm invested in you, because I believe you have a future in basketball. If I ignore you, that's a bad sign. That means I have written you off. Like, there's nothing I can do to help you enough to become a productive member of the team. But you know what? The more invested they were in basketball and the more they were willing to work, the more I disciplined and chastened them and addressed their bad habits because they wanted to grow as basketball players. And a good coach makes his players grow up. I didn't pat them on the back and say, awesome game if it wasn't an awesome game. Sorry, I said, I, I might say you play hard. That's only if they played hard. I wasn't going to lie to them. I don't want you to feel good about something you shouldn't feel good about. Do you want to grow? Do you want to become a better, more mature person in this endeavor? And if their answer is yes, then I will invest in your life. And I will pat you on the back. I will encourage you. I will do all of those things. But if you need to learn, my job is to help you learn. I remember having a conversation one time with my oldest son. And there was an issue in his life that he just wasn't addressing. He, he wasn't addressing, and he needed to address it to grow up. And, and I said, AJ, if you're watching this, AJ, what's up? Um, like, AJ, I don't really want to talk to you about this because this is going to be a hard conversation, but I'm your dad. I'm your steward. God gave you to me as a gift, and now my job is to help you grow up to be a man and not stay a boy. So you and I are going to talk about this. And I did that because I love my boys. I was for them. That wasn't a conversation that was against AJ. It was for his good. As one author have noted, the chastening of God is not expected to be a pleasant or delightful experience, but it's grievous. Its purpose being to exercise the believer by forcing him to adapt 
to painful, sorrowful, or discouraging circumstances, and its purpose being the ennoblement of spiritual life and the strengthening of character. The most wonderful people on earth are those who have passed through the chastening experiences of life, whose faith, love, and understanding and sympathy are grounded in the true love of God and man, and whose lives as a result have been expanded and beautified. I'm going to brag a little bit on some friends this morning. I'm going to embarrass them because they're visiting. So I have friends here this morning, Mark and Charlene Troyer. Mark is on the board um, with the organization that we work with in Costa Rica. But I grew up going to school with Charlene, and my very first construction job was with Mark. And talking with them recently, we've managed to reconnect in Costa Rica last November, and then they were here yesterday, and we got to hang out. Um, As I have listened to them talk about their lives, they have been through a refining fire, both of them in different ways. And I got to be honest, there's something about their presence. Their lives have been expanded and beautified. Uh, There's a strengthening of character and and an ennoblement to them. And they were always good people that I liked. But, But man, the trials of life are refining them, and they're just beautiful people. So say hi to Mark and Charlene afterwards. And you're embarrassed enough, so I'm going to move on. See, when we endure hardship, it's a sign that God's invested in us. It's a sign that God loves us enough to glorify us through the work of Christ in us. And as a good father, if that takes trials, and I'm expanding this now to just... And because I think the passage does this. I'm not talking about God chastening us because we're doing something bad. I'm talking about the broad picture, the hardship of life. And I'm going to get to some examples of that in a minute. Just the things we go through that threaten to tear us down, that threaten to knock us out of the race, that just put us on our backs. Those things, if we surrender ourselves to God, he's using that to mature us, to refine us, to learn something about who he is. God's pruning us so that we bear fruit. So number one, um, discipline, trials, chastening, it's going to happen in our lives. Number two, hardship is not necessarily a sign of God's wrath. A dude named Brian Chapel said, since God's justice has been fully satisfied, that's through Christ on the cross. The remaining purposes of his discipline are to help those dear to him to know more of the riches of his grace and to grow more like him. So divine discipline is correction, not vengeance. If you're a follower of Jesus, Christ absorbed the wrath of God on the cross. So when God allows things in our life to refine us in some fashion, this isn't because God is wreaking vengeance on us. God is a good father who desires to use these experiences to grow something in us. It's intended to benefit us, not punish us. There's some movements in Christianity that that would teach that you could tell how much God loves you, or you could tell how good you're doing spiritually by how good or easy your life is. And, And friends, that's just not biblical. The Lord chastens those he loves. God will prune you for your entire life. That's the reality of being a child of God. God's investing in you when you go through hard times. He's not distancing himself from you. He's doing a work in you. 
when you experience those things. Please avoid the tendency to try to judge someone else's spiritual journey by whether or not their life is easy or whether or not their life is hard. Are we tracking on this? All right? God is using those hardships for our good, for his glory. Point number three, it's going to look different for different people. What I mean by this is let's not judge the thorn in the flesh of others. Let's go to Paul for a little bit in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Lest I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I be exalted above measure. Notice something. This isn't Paul sinning and something bad happening. This is Paul flourishing in Christ. Right? Paul's having visions. Like, super spirit, right? I mean, this is, like, whoo, Paul's doing really good. So this isn't any kind of punishment. This isn't a response to something bad that Paul has done. He just, uh, he had an abundance of revelations. Amazing. But now Paul says, lest I um, be exalted above measure, uh, a messenger of Satan was given to me. Concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. And he said, my grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in weakness. In other words, Paul Were you waiting for the good life for me to be sufficient? Do you understand the grace that is offered through Christ is sufficient for you to glorify and worship me? If you get nothing else in life, my grace is sufficient for you. And actually, my strength, you'll see the strength of God manifest in the weaknesses in our life. Therefore, most gladly, I would rather boast in my infirmities. Boast in my infirmities. Notice, that's sicknesses. That's not punishment. That's not anything. This is just whatever this thorn was, and nobody's really sure. Paul says, actually, this is occasion for me uh, to boast in my infirmities that the power of God may rest upon me. So I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in distresses, for Christ's sake, for when I'm weak, that I'm strong. In other words, Paul says, you name the bad circumstance. The power of Christ is resting upon me. It's in those moments I see the power of God in me because how do I survive them emotionally, spiritually, mentally? How do I keep it all together in the midst of these circumstances? That's a God work. That is Christ in me that's the hope of glory. Those circumstances, though, I'm not sure Paul, I don't get the impression Paul was like, woohoo, this is so exciting, this is my ideal life. Paul was just saying, when these things happen, and they happen to Paul all the time, God is doing something in me. How amazing is that? How exciting is it that God loves me enough to allow me to go through this so that he can be seen through me, his power can be seen to the world as he works in me, and I get to mature in my relationship with Christ. That is a win-win. So I don't know what it is for you. I don't know what your thorn in the flesh is. Is it illness or sickness? Is it financial hardship, depression, loneliness, PTSD, anger, family of origin issues. I don't know what the things are in your life that you're pleading for God to take away over and over again. And that for whatever reason, in God's wisdom and purposes, his response has been, 
Uh, my grace is sufficient for you. My strength will be made perfect in your weakness. That this thing that is tempting to drown you, God says, oh, oh no, wait. This is something I am using to bring something out in you. And, and hear me carefully. I'm not saying that God is purposefully sending these things to you. I don't, I don't know all the ins and outs of what God specifically does, but I know one thing for sure. At minimum, God is allowing it. Can we all agree on this? God's allowing it. If God allows something to his children, he has a plan to take that which has been given to you and use it for your good and for his glory. That's why in the midst of whatever our circumstances are, we don't get discouraged as followers of Christ because something good is going to come out of this as God works in us. Um, I, I feel like I need to add something else. So when I think of two big issues in my life that were really traumatic trials for me, they were my dad's death and they were my heart attack. Those are the two biggies. I have lots of other ones, but those are the two biggies. Um, I, I sometimes hear the phrase, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. That is not necessarily a true phrase. So much depends on your response to the situation that you have been given. My dad's death could have been a cause for bitterness and anger and resentment in my life. And I'm not going to lie to you. Part of my journey through grief involved those things. My heart attack and the way it's changed my life could be a cause of bitterness and anger and resentment. Neither of those things killed me, but they hurt me. And there is one scenario in which I don't become stronger out of those things. And I suspect most of, in this, most of us in this room have experienced circumstances in life, hardship we've gone through in some fashion, that it sure didn't feel like, A, it made us stronger, or B, that it was any good at all. But there's another option to that. The other option is to say, okay, I have a loving Father in heaven who is sovereign. Without getting into the debate about what all that means, I do know this. God was not surprised by my dad's death or my heart attack, and God in his wisdom allowed those things. Now, is God up in the heavens wringing his hand and wondering what to do with these crappy situations Anthony was given? I don't think so. Out of those situations, God has a plan to use those things. For those who are called according to his purpose, God works things together for good. So what comes out of that? Because of God's faithfulness in my life. Um, good things have happened in me because of my father's death. I am a more mature person than I was before. Dear God, I wish I could have gotten there another way, but that was the path. I'm a more mature person than I was before my heart attack because my heart attack did a work of maturation in me because God was at work in me using that kind of situation to teach me things I needed to learn. Could I have learned them another way? I don't know. But I, this is the way I was given. And I can make a choice about what to do with that. Do I surrender myself to Christ and say, okay, 
to a good and loving father, I believe that you are invested in my life and whatever trials and difficulties, chastisements, discipline, whatever you want to call it, if you allow this into my life, I trust you. I trust you. You have the power to turn this to my good. And as you turn this to my good, as uh, as the passage says for Paul, uh, as his strength is made perfected in my weakness, as you begin to see what God does with this, now that's what we mean when I say it's just not my good, it's also for God's glory. What possible good thing could come from this circumstance in your life? Surrender it to Christ and watch what happens. God is really good at bringing beauty from ashes. Uh, One theologian I was reading said, he gives to each of us just our own trial. What by his grace will most amend us, what will bring us most to himself, what will most draw out the good which he has implanted in us or burn out the evil which would most estrange or ruin us. That's what a loving God does. Final point. Our example matters. So let's go to the last verse in that section. Make straight paths. And depending on your translation, it's either going to say with your feet or for your feet so that the lame among you won't be put out of joint but will heal. Notice why we make straight paths. It's for the community It doesn't say make these straight paths or stay in these straight paths just for your own sake. It's because there's people around you, and this is specifically in church community, who are inclined to stumble. They're weak. Things are broken in them. What we need to do is create this rut of righteousness that as we walk and we bring other people with us, even if they stumble, they're not going to fall out of it. By the way, when the Bible talks about the road being straight and narrow, that type of thing, once again, that's a reference to a ditch. It's not the kind of road like we drive on that we can easily wander off of. The call here is to groove the ground with our faithful representation and obedience to Christ. And as we do that, not only is that good for us, but we're actually creating a community and an environment that strengthens people around us. This is what's captured in this verse. I think this is what the great cloud of witnesses in Hebrews 11 or the beginning of Hebrews 12 did for us. These followers of God who by their examples of obedience and faithfulness paved the way and act as an encouragement to us in difficult times. That's what we get to do now. We get to be part of that cloud of witnesses. And so as we follow this path already made for us, we deepen the groove. We, we stabilize not just ourselves, but everybody around us. And, and I'm thinking in a practical sense, parents, you know we model life for our kids, right? You know that as parents, we're creating some kind of groove to walk through in life. And our kids, while they are their own people, will certainly be inclined to walk in the groove that we make. I think I've probably told you this before about uh, one time, one of my boys... Okay, fine. It was AJ. Um, he won't care if I tell you this. We, when he was young, we were out in the shed one time doing something, and, and AJ, uh, he hurt himself or something, and he said, damn it. I was like, what? Where did you? 
And that's when I began to watch my tongue more because I was creating a groove that my son was following. I've noticed in the last couple years, um, based on some responses from my boys, more than I realized when I drive, I'm incredibly critical of other drivers. And let's be honest, most of them are worse than I am, but (laughs) I'm really vocal about it and really annoyed. And I did not realize how much my boys were absorbing that to the point where they weren't that excited about driving because they kind of assumed if other drivers are like dad... Why would they want to get out and drive and make everybody else angry? Friends, that's a groove in the road. That's a path I made for my boys to follow. Now I'm busy trying to fill that path then, right? I, I could change. But, but this is the idea. We build grooves in church life. As we follow Christ, we're setting an example that gradually the more we do it, the more a pattern is, the more it's a ditch, the more it, and I don't mean that in a bad way, the more it's the kind of thing where if people walk in it, they can be stabilized for Christ, or if we're not careful, they're unstabilized away from Christ. And I was thinking about the way this looks in church life. What is more powerful than joy in the midst of sickness? If we're talking now about viewing things God sends our way in such a way that God is honored and we mature, now at the end we're talking about setting a standard for others to see. What is more powerful than joy in the midst of sickness? Someone who says, I have been given this, but this has not robbed me of the joy of having Jesus as my Savior. I hate going to the doctor. I hate having dialysis. I hate getting treatments. It's okay. I'm not telling you squelch those frustrating emotions. I'm just saying joy is a different thing than happiness. In the midst of these things, do we see the joy of Jesus in us? What a fabulous example and an encouragement for others. Because if others aren't yet sick, they will be most likely. And if they've had a groove set for them, that shows what it's like to flourish in the kingdom of God in the midst of sickness. What's more compelling than peace in the midst of financial storm? I don't know about you. I'm unsettled about the idea of being in a financial storm. There's a lot wrapped up in it. There's there's ego, there's safety, there's provision. I mean, there's all kinds of things wrapped up in this idea. But what does it look like if you're in this church and you're in the midst of financial storm and it is clear to everybody that you're at peace? Because you have a good father who has put you in a good family. And it will be okay. And God is going to use it in some fashion to do something good. What's more promising than hope when everything we look at threatens us with despair? I feel like right now, culturally, there's a mood of despair often in the American church. Man, what does it look like for us to be the people who are always hopeful, never despairing? And someone goes, how can you be this hopeful when this is happening? Because I have Jesus. His grace is sufficient to build my hope on. What's more fascinating than seeing the cycle of repentance and forgiveness play out in real time? What's more amazing than real agape love? toward even the most unlovable. All of these are situations where something's going to happen in our life that brings us a challenge and a trial that we have the opportunity to walk in a path that sets the tone 
that creates the groove for this community because what we do is more than just us. We're standard setters about what can happen for you when you're in the midst of that kind of trial. Uh, I was going to play a song. We don't have time to play a song. Uh, once I post this online, I'll add some videos that you can watch that I think would be helpful as you meditate on this. But I just want to close this morning with a prayer that is not my own. It was a prayer written by Randy Smith, and it seems like a good way to conclude. Oh, Lord, don't give me what I deserve. Give me what I need. Don't remove the discipline, but discipline me in kindness and grace. Let not your rod be a sword, but let it be the stern hand of a loving father that wants to turn me from my ways and make me more like yourself. I bring none of my goodness to you, but I plead on behalf of my littleness. I want the blessing of your rebuke, not the billows of your anger, and I trust you as my father. Correct me, change me, and restore and make new our relationship. Amen. This has been a presentation of the Church of the Living God. For more information, please visit us at clgonline.org.